So this is our uh, study group on Simondon's individuation in light of notions of form and information. Uh, we're starting from page 315 of the translation. So we're in the part on psychic individuation and uh, we're on chapter three of that part, the, the last chapter um, before we get to collective individuation. So last time we, we read um, sections four and five, I believe, um, of this chapter. And so we saw in that section, in section four, this criticism that Simondon makes of the notion of adaptation in, uh, in psychology. His criticism is essentially that by using a notion like adaptation to external reality or something along those lines in psychology, you're presupposing a certain sociological doctrine or, or you're, you're presupposing a certain understanding of what that external reality that you're supposed to adapt to is. Uh, and then any, any use of notions like um, a pathological versus a normal state or something like that, you, uh, when you use those types of notions, you're already presupposing some sort of representation of what the society to which you're supposed to be adapted or to which you're supposed to be, in which you're supposed to have this normal state. Uh, you're, you're presupposing what that society is. And so you're not giving an account, um, you're not giving an account of the genesis of that society or of social organization. You're just sort of presupposing it implicitly without having an explicit statement of what you're, uh, what you mean by this um, uh, understanding of, of society. And in particular, he looks at this, this notion of reflexivity in, uh, in relation to individuation. So with this notion, he, He's suggesting that when we when we identify psychological states as being normal or or pathological, we should be doing so, or part of what we're doing is recognizing the relationship between that state and uh, and itself, rather than um, uh, between that state and some sort of external reality. There's a sort of reflexive character to uh, psychological states. They they have this sort of self-reference property to them. This, this self-referential character or, or reflexive character is difficult to account for unless we, we give an account of the individuation process of the genesis of these psychological states and, and of psychological reality in general. And so that's what Simondon sets out to do in this section, um, is to show us how this psychological reality appears on the basis of the uh, previously existing vital individuation and effectively how how it is that what's the relationship between the psycho uh, psychological states or, or psychical reality in general and uh, vital individuation and the picture that he presents is a, a complicated one um, and some of the details are, are a bit obscure but the the general picture is that there's a, a vital individuation, there, there's the genesis of a living being, and that living being uh, exists in a, a physical world that's surrounded by objects that reflect energy, uh, light that reflect light onto it and, and sound waves and so on. All of this surrounding uh, physical world it forms the environment for that living being. Uh, and then the psychological reality would be sort of the mediation or the limit between the vital reality and the physical world. The psychological sort of inserts itself between the 
the vital, which, which takes the form of the interior, and the uh, physical, which takes the form of the exterior for that organism. We saw here that he uses uh, what, what's a, a somewhat surprising term. He, he describes this as a dialectic, uh, a dialectical relationship between interiority and exteriority. So there's a, a sort of reciprocal mediation between interior and exterior. And uh, so this term dialectical is, is surprising because earlier in the book, he's criticized what he describes as a, a dialectical schema. Um, and, and he's presented his own transductive uh, schema as being opposed to the dialectical one. But here he actually takes on the term for his own um, account of the relationship between inter interiority and exteriority. And then there was this bit that um, Angus pointed to in the chat, uh, meantime, since last week's session, um, having to do so on page 311, so a couple pages before where we ended last time, he talks about this, this reciprocity of subject and object, and he refers to knowledge and action as, as being instances of this reciprocity. And so Angus was asking whether this is connected with uh, the trans individual. And, and we've seen throughout this, this section of the book that the, the psychological level or, or psychical individuation it sort of points beyond itself to the trans individual. There, there's no... Um, there's no sort of completion of the psychological per simondo. Uh, there's no there's no sense in which the psychological is um, sort of self-contained or or self-subsistent, and and so I think that bit uh, about knowledge and action as constituting this reciprocal relationship between subject and object. I think we have to read it in connection with what comes just on the next page where he talks about how there's no such thing as a psychological world. So that if we try to, the, there's a sort of appearance or illusion of a, a completed psychological reality, psychological world. But what we have instead is what he calls a trans-individual universe. So it's only at the level of the trans-individual of, of what surpasses the individual uh, subject um, it's only at that level that you have some sort of completion or uh, something like a, a world or a universe. Yeah, so I think we have to read that that bit about knowledge and action as bringing about that reciprocity in connection with the the bit about the non-existence of a psychological world. Um, so that's about where we got to last time. Um, so I'll pick up from page 315 uh, and then we'll... Continue from there. Thus, psychological reality appears to be what is elaborated by elaborating transindividuality. This elaboration rests on two interconnected dialectics, one of which interiorizes the exterior and the other of which exteriorizes the interior. Psychological individuality is therefore a domain of transductivity in this sense. It is not a substance, and the notion of the soul must be revised, since it seems to imply that some of its aspects. Sorry, it seems to imply in some of its aspects the idea of a substantiality of the psychological individual. However, beyond the notion of the soul's substantiality and also beyond the notion of the inexistence of any spiritual reality, there is the possibility of defining a trans-individual reality. The afterlife of the soul is then no longer presented with the characteristics that the quarrel between materialism and spiritualism have given it. The most delicate question is undoubtedly that of the personal nature of the afterlife of psychological individuality. None of the alleged reasons for proving this personal character are definitive. All these reasons and this whole search simply show the existence of the desire for eternity, which is indeed a reality qua desire. 
and as desire is obviously not a simple notion. It is also the emergence of a dynamism of the being, of a dynamism that makes trans-individuality exist by suffusing it with value. It nevertheless seems possible to affirm that the path of research here is indeed the examination of this trans-individual reality that psychological reality is. In a certain sense, every human act achieved on the level of trans-individuality is endowed with the power of indefinite propagation that confers on it a virtual immortality, but is the individual itself immortal? The interior of the individual cannot be immortal since it, too since it has too many biological roots to be able to be immortal. The pure exteriority attached to the individual with its deeds or its works insofar as they materialize its action also cannot be immortal. They survive it but are not eternal. What can be eternal is this exceptional relation between interiority and exteriority, which is designated as supernatural and which must be maintained above any interiorist or communal deviation. Just as the excellence of the sacred is something enviable for cementing the greatness of, of establishment or for legitimizing the promotion of a certain interiority to the status of spirituality, there is a strong tendency to the interiorist or communal deviation of trans-individual spirituality. No solution in this domain can be absolutely clear. The notion of the soul and that of matter merely provide the false simplicity of what habit presents and manipulates without clarifying the implicit meanings. The notion of the afterlife through trans-individuality is more unfashionable and less common than that of the completely personal afterlife or the, of the soul, or that of cosmic afterlife in a pantheistic union, but it is not more confused. Like them, it can only be grasped by intuitions formed in an active and creative contemplation. Wisdom, heroism, and sainthood are the three paths for studying this trans-individuality according to the predominance of representation, action, or, or affectivity. None of them can lead to a complete definition of trans-individuality, but each designates in some way one of the aspects of trans-individuality and contributes a dimension of eternity to individual life. The hero is immortalized through his sacrifice, just as the martyr in his bearing witness and the sage in his radiant thought. The excellence of action, the excellence of thought, and the excellence of affectivity, moreover, are not exclusive with respect to one another. Socrates is a sage, but his death is a heroic testimony of affective purity. Martyrs are saints become heroes. Every path of trans-individuality initiates the other paths. Furthermore, each of them has something in common that marks the category of the trans-individual specifically and manifests it without, however, sufficing to define it. What they each share is a certain sense of inhibition, which is like a negative revelation that puts the individual into communication with an order of reality superior to that of everyday life. According to the cultural basis of each path, these inhibitions that orient action are presented as emanating from a certain transcendent being or from a spirit, genie, such as Socrates' daimon. But what is most important is the existence of this inhibition. In sainthood, it manifests through the refusal of everything that is judged impure. In heroism, abject and ignoble actions are refused. And in wisdom, the refusal of the useful and the affirmation of the necessity of disinterest has the same value of inhibition. The lack of this inhibition was seen in the sophist by Plato, and this is what allowed him to oppose Socrates against them. There is a negative and inhibited, inhibitive aspect of ascesis which prepares the way to wisdom. The being surpasses itself specifically to the extent that this inhibition is exerted, either according to a search for transcendence or by being immortalized in the sensible. It should be noted that this inhibition can take on different forms, but it only transforms the better to, to, to subsist. Thus in Nietzsche, the ancient and classical aspects of this inhibition are refused and fiercely critiqued, 
violence replaces sainthood and the inspired frenzy of Dionysus compensates the cold lucidity of Apollo with the creation of the gay science. But what remains is contempt, which becomes the attitude of Nietzsche's hero in which, under the auspices of a feeling of the overman's superiority, in fact contains an extremely strong inhibition. The overman is denied happiness in any sort of... Uh, so this bit, um, he, he's coming back here to this... Um, um, to this question of imminence and transcendence that we saw um, a little while ago um, in, in a previous reading. Um, and now he's, he's asking about the question of personal, personal immortality or personal survival after death. Um, and uh, of course, he's not going to uh, sort of take a position either for or against this notion of, of personal immortality. Uh, what he's going to do instead is to give a genetic account of the the experience um, of of that desire for immortality. Um, so what we want to what we want to do is explain why it is that um, that we have this this sense of um, wanting to be immortal or of uh, wanting a an existence after death. Um, and he he's going to suggest here that, that there's sort of two deviations, two different um, uh, errors, opposite errors in understanding uh, personal immortality, and he calls them interiorist and communal deviations. So these would be accounts that um, that uh, reduce the the trans individual either to something that is purely interior, so something purely uh, Psychological and and individual, uh, on the one hand, or on the other hand, to reduce the trans individual to something um, that would be uh, equivalent to an existing community, a, a community as a an already individuated entity, uh, and so we instead have to think we have to sort of hold on to this thought of the trans individual as something that. Um, is not yet individuated that that underlies the individuation of uh, both both individual subjects and uh, communities, and um, so this trans individuality um, sort of manifests itself in human existence in the sense of spirituality, um, and uh, we again we've seen uh, in previous readings his discussion of spirituality. Um, and here, um, here he's talking about um, these these different um, paths of spirituality, these, these different sort of figures uh, that that manifest spirituality within a human community, and and he names them uh, wisdom, heroism, and sainthood. So wisdom would be a, a, a sort of um, a, the manifestation of, of this trans individual or, or of spirituality uh, with respect to representation uh, and then heroism with respect to action and sainthood with respect to affectivity. Um, but then as he mentions in that, uh, in that passage that we just read, um, there's a sort of um, blending of all these different uh, paths with each other uh, so that um, uh, you can be a, a, a saint and a hero at the same time, or you can be um, 
a sage or and a, a hero and etc you can combine these different paths together um and so this is this uh this spirituality um manifests itself in in the sense of uh the, what he calls here an inhibition so um it's a, a sort of refusal of something that uh refusal of a certain possibility uh so in a given situation you might have uh, a possibility of doing something um doing something ignoble or or base and uh the spirituality of the hero consists in refusing that action um so refusing to betray someone uh, under torture or something like that um uh an action where where you um hold yourself back from some sort of possibility that is presenting itself to you uh, and then likewise with the other um the other paths of spirituality there's a an inhibition from something that uh that would be possible uh and and um this inhibition or this ascetic um uh practice sort of uh is the manifestation of spirituality within uh, a human community uh yeah and there's an interesting comment here from angus on um on this idea um this term of virtual immortality that um that simondon uh uses here um sorry let me just find the exact passage um yeah sorry i'm not seeing it right right away but um uh, he, he says that in a certain sense every human act achieved on the level of trans individuality is endowed with the power of indefinite propagation that confers on it a virtual immortality on um, 315. Right, okay. Um, yeah, thanks. So yeah, there's, there's this, um, I mean, he's careful to sort of qualify this, this uh, phrase here. So he says, in a certain sense, uh, and then he, he uses this term, a, a virtual immortality. Um, so the, he's, he's sort of um, being careful not to state that there is something like um, um, uh, a real immortality um, that is created by a human act. Um, but I think this goes back to what we saw earlier when he talked about spirituality um, and, and he talks about um, the works that are more durable than bronze on the one hand, um, like the uh, uh, works of poetry and so on, but then also at the same time, these, these actions that are um, fleeting actions that uh, like the, the gesture of the slave running away from his master, um, that um, uh, these, these actions, um, have a, a spiritual value, even though they, they aren't lasting, they're precisely um, uh, fleeting actions. Um, and, and so the, the, I think you're right to, to say that the, the immortality that we are talking about in this passage here, um, this immortality uh, of, of every human act um, is uh, an immortality that has to do with the capacity for that action to be um, taken up again by someone else. So um, the, the immortality of the hero or of the saint or whatever is, um, is a, an immortality in the sense that their action, their refusal of, of a base action or, or whatever um, specific 
um, act that they take on um, is is something that can be um, taken up again in in the future by others. Uh, so it, it's in that sense that um, it's only in that sense that that there's something like an immortality after after death, um, uh, as opposed to a, some sort of substantial existence of the soul beyond death, um, which Simodon does not want to um, commit himself to. Yeah, and there was that earlier passage where he talked about uh, the kind of afterlife of the affective individual, which is which he described as like the individual, the sign of the individual becoming inverted in death, but continuing to propagate with, I guess, the, the characteristics of the relation of that effective life while the individual was alive, so long as these rites of remembrance are observed by people who are still living. Right, yeah, so the, the individual that dies um, is still present as an absence um, in the sense that the living uh, individuals still um, still have those relations um, in a sort of one-sided sense. They're, they're still connected to that person who has died. Um, they still, uh, and so the, the uh, dead individual uh, lives on as an absence in the lives of uh, those who remain. Um, yeah, so I think in general, um, like he, he gives sort of different um, different versions of this um, in in respect in relation to different um, psychological categories, but the general idea is of immortality through living on in others um, in various ways. And one one bit also that um, uh, I think comes up again later um, is the way that. Um, this trans-individual reality or this spirituality um, is sort of refracted through the culture of the of the person in question. Um, and so this experience of trans-individuality uh, that Socrates has uh, is is depicted as um, the the intervention of his uh, daimon, the the spirit that tells him not to do something that he thought he should do or, or something like that. Um, it's uh, within the, the culture of um, 4th century Athens, um, the, the only sort of category in which he can put this experience of the trans individual is the category of the intervention of a divine being. Um, but then in, in a different cultural context, uh, the trans-individual or spirituality might manifest in a completely different way. Um, and, and so this, uh, it, it would have, it would fall under a different cultural category. Um, so each, each um, culture would have its own sort of category that it assigns to these uh, experiences of the trans-individual. Okay, so let's go on to um, the next bit from uh, beginning of 317. Uh, if one of you would like to read? I can read. Um, yeah. Psychological individuality introduces certain norms that do not exist on the biological level. <clears throat> Whereas biological finality is homeostatic and seeks to obtain a satisfaction for the being in a state of greater equilibrium, psychological individuality exists to the extent that this biological equilibrium and this satisfaction are judged insufficient. 
Apprehensiveness and concern in vital security mark the arrival of psychological individuality or its possibility of existence at the very least. Psychological individuality cannot be created by a devitalization of the vital rhythm or by a direct inhibition of the tendencies since this would lead since this would then lead to nothing but an interiority and not a spirituality. Psychological individuality is superimposed on biological individuality without destroying it, since spiritual reality cannot be created by a simple negation of the vital. We should note that the distinction between the vital order and the psychological order is particularly revealed by the fact that their respective normativities constitute a chiasmus. Worry appears during a time in which biological calm dominates. And during times of pain, spirituality transforms into defensive reflexes. Fear transforms spirituality into superstition. Ultimately, the appeal to transcendence that sees in spiritual reality of being distinct from the living individual is still too close to imminence. There is still too much biological reality in a pantheistic or creationist conception of spirituality. Indeed, pantheistic or creationist conceptions place the individual in an attitude whose initial participation is undertaken with great difficulty. Participation requires a sort of self-abnegation and a sort of self-departure, both through the negation of individual reality, as in the thought of Spinoza, as well as through the detachment of the individual from the biological milieu, as in certain aspects of creationist mysticism. This is because too much individuality remains in the conception of the trans individual. The relation between the biological individual and the trans individual then can only intervene through a disindividuation of the individual. Here, the error, properly speaking, is not one of anthropomorphism, of, but of the individualization of the trans individual. Perhaps only negative theology has made an effort not to think the trans individual in the manner of a superior individuality that is vaster, but just as individual as that of the human being. The most difficult anthropomorphism to avoid is that of individuality. Nevertheless, pantheism does not avoid this anthropomorphism, for it can do nothing but expand the singular individual to the dimensions of the cosmos. But the analogy between microcosm and macrocosm, which remains present through this infinite expansion of unique substance, sustains the individuality of the macrocosm. It is no doubt because of this ineradicable individuality that every pantheism leads to this difficult conception of freedom within necessity, whose infinitely subtle Spinoza's form, however, is reminiscent of the stoic image of the dog attached to the cart. The dog is a slave when its will is not in unison with the rhythm of the carriage, while it is free when it has been able to synchronize its movements, the movements of its will with the cart's successive stops and starts. What is oppressive in every type of pantheism is the valorization of the cosmic law as both the rule of thought and of the individual will. However, this valorization of universal determinism intervenes because there is an implicit presupposition. The universe is an individual. Uh, theodicy can be opposed to pantheism as well as creationism in the doctrine of a personal God, because in both cases, facts become norms, insofar as the mutual foundation of the fact and the norm is a law, that, that of the internal organization of the supreme individual. The transcendence or eminence of this individual relative 
to the world does not change the fundamental schema of its constitution, which thereby confers value on each determination. Should I just finish this section? Uh, sure, yeah. Furthermore, we should ask to what extent the phenomenon that psychologists call quote unquote split personality comes up in, this, in the study of trans individuality. Indeed, the splitting of the personality is quite clearly a pathological aspect of self-consciousness and of behavior. However, there is nevertheless an aspect of the study of spirituality that cannot fail to bring splitting to mind. This aspect is the separation in itself between good and evil, between beast and angel, which is a separation accompanied by the awareness of man's twofold nature and is projected outside in mythology as a Manichaeanism that defines a principle of good and a principle of evil in the world. The very idea of demons with the description of the means they use to tempt someone's soul is merely the transposition of this duality accompanied by an implicit technique of exercising the evil one has within oneself. For the devil is not just the principle of evil, the devil is also the scapegoat that pays for all the sins and weaknesses that one does not wish to attribute to oneself and to whom one attributes responsibility. In this way, bad conscience is transformed into hate against the devil. Temptation is the imminence of the personality split, the moment when the being feels that it will allow its effort and its tension to be release, released to a fall into a lower level of thought and action. This fall of oneself away from oneself gives the impression of an alienation. It is put back into a perspective of exteriority. No doubt the splitting would not exist if man always lived and thought on the same level. But how can one explain that the fall from a higher level to a lower level gives the impression of an alienation? This is because the presence of the trans individual then is found lacking, and because the subject understands that its existence is realigned or defined by new values, which are not, properly speaking, more mediocre than the old ones or absolutely antagonistic, but foreign to them. These new values do not contradict the old values, for to contradict is still to recognize, yet they do not speak the same language. The fall to a lower level could not cause the splitting on its own if there were not, if there weren't at the same time a decentering of the system of references. If the lower values were in an analogical rapport relative to the higher values, if there were but a vertical leap from one level to the other, the profound disorientation that arises in temptation would not manifest. By resorting to a more simplified expression, one can turn the notion of disorientation into an invasion of evil and the notion of evil into a correlate of the good with respect to a neutrality of values. If evil were the correlate of the good, the ego would never be foreign to itself. Here there is an essentially asymmetrical relation, and the substantialist idea of two natures is still much too close to a schema of symmetry to be able to account for this relation. Right, so there's a lot in this, um, this passage um, so maybe you can go through it in order. Um, so, um, um, so maybe the first bit is to um, this notion of the homeostatic, um, which is a, a term that comes up in, um, in biology and has to do with the way that um, biological uh, processes tend towards some sort of equilibrium uh, the equilibrium state that they maintain uh and um 
you can also find this in, in various technological processes. Uh, and the simplest example is a thermostat. So it's set so that um, it maintains a certain temperature. And if the temperature falls below that level, then the heat comes on until it reaches the temperature again, and then the heat goes off. Uh, so it, it uh, it's a, a very simple system that um, has this uh, finalistic character. So it, it's directed towards a certain state and maintaining that state. Um, but um, psychological reality for Simondon doesn't have this homeostatic character. Um, um, there's a certain insufficiency of equilibrium for psychological reality. So um, in, in psychological reality, um, in our understanding of ourselves, we don't uh, think of ourselves as, as purely seeking equilibrium or seeking to maintain a certain state. We think of ourselves as wanting to um, develop and uh, improve ourselves and uh, uh, better our lives over the course of, of our lifespan. Um, so um, there's this uh, um, there's a, a certain insufficiency of this purely um, purely equilibrium conception of uh, of finality, and um, Simon Dong here points out that um, the trans individual uh, sort of uh, is, or or spiritual reality is only manifested. Um, when there's um when there is a certain sufficiency of uh the vital uh vital reality um and so there's um um this appearance of uh of worry or of um more psychological concerns um when vital concerns are already met uh and in the case of spiritual reality, there's a sort of um, deviation that it can undergo uh, in the presence of, of fear, uh, which, which Simon Dong calls superstition here. Um, so this is the way that um, this experience of the trans individual instead becomes uh, a sort of defense mechanism. Uh, and then we have this passage where Simon Dong talks about um, the his criticism of a, a certain notion of, of pantheism uh, and he, he's explicitly mentioned Spinoza here um, but he's also compared Nietzsche or, or he's, he's used this term pantheism in relation to Nietzsche um, and so we have um, the the criticism here is that pantheism uh, it still presupposes that um, this divine reality that that is identical with the universe is uh is an individual uh it it still is sort of mistakenly treating the trans individual as something individual uh, and so in this sense it's comparable it's the same type of error as um treating uh the trans individual as a personal god uh as a um a divine person that would also be an individual um so the error here, as Simono puts it, is not exactly anthropomorphism. Uh, so it's not it's not just that we're um, uh, sort of attributing human qualities to the divine. It's that we're treating the the trans individual as an individual, uh, and and this is um, the the much more difficult um, 
form of anthropomorphism to avoid. Uh, and, and he points here to um, negative theology as a, a possible um, attempt to avoid this type of anthropomorphism. And, and so negative theology is um, a, a tradition or um, a, a set of traditions that appear in, in different, um, different religions that tries to use um, negative language to um, sort of approximate divine reality. Uh, and so uh, like it would be a, an anthropomorphism to attribute human qualities to, to God or even any positive qualities. So all we can say about, um, about divine reality is that um, it doesn't have any of these properties that, that we might ascribe to, to it. Um, and so we can only sort of have a negative knowledge of divine reality. Uh, and so that, that's sort of what makes up the um, negative theology tradition. Um, and then Simon Dome points, points also towards this um, problem that comes up in various pantheistic systems, which is the incorporation of the individual within this cosmic order um, or this divine um, uh, reality. Um, it, it seems to require some sort of understanding of, um, um, of freedom and necessity as being the same thing in some way. Um, so because we're part of this cosmic order, uh, like for Spinoza, we, we, um, our, our actions are determined. There's no such thing as freedom of the will in the Cartesian sense of the term. Uh, and we instead have to understand freedom as meaning um, the capacity for the causes of our actions to be within ourselves. Um, um, so it's only, um, uh, uh, it's only some sort of, um, uh, sort of reframing of our conception of ourselves, I guess, um, that allows us to be free. Um, so we, we're still determined, um, we're still uh, determined to, to act uh, in certain ways. And, uh, but at the same time, we understand the causes of those actions to be within ourselves. Um, and uh, uh, so Simon Don argues that um, that we have uh, a similar problem in this conception as we do in the conception of uh, a personal God, um, namely of, of reconciling freedom and necessity. Um, or uh, uh, he points to theodicy here, which, is, which has to do with the problem of evil. Um, and, uh, and so the problem, the problem of evil is uh, the problem of uh, you know, if the universe is governed by um, by uh, a benevolent and omnipotent God, then how is it the case that evil exists? And free will is, is generally taken to be the answer to, to this within um, religious philosophy uh, in some sense that um, somehow human freedom uh, um, uh, is uh, like, the existence of human freedom is in some sense more valuable than um, preventing evil or something along those lines. Uh, and, and so Simondon argues that the same problem appears um, 
in uh, in a different form for pantheistic systems as it does in the uh, personal systems. Um, so we still have to sort of reconcile human freedom with the determin determinism of nature or the, the cosmic order. Um, and, uh, and so that insertion of the individual and um, the, the value of the individual in comparison with the cosmic order is still a problem. Um, and it doesn't matter really whether we um, consider the divine reality to be identical with the world or outside the world. It, it still uh, brings up the same problem. Uh, and then, and then he, he passes um, kind of abruptly, I think, to another question, but uh, a related one in the sense that um, we're still talking about good and evil. Um, so he talks about um, this concept of split personality, or um, in, in French, it's actually more uh, a doubled personality um, is, is the term that he uses. Um, uh, and, and this would be the idea of um, this was something like in the late 19th century that was sort of um, and, and early 20th century that was sort of uh, under discussion in the case of hypnotism, for example, where um, uh, a subject under uh, hypnotic suggestion will perform actions in the hypnotized state. Uh, and then when, when they're brought out of the hypnotized state, they don't remember what they just did or, or they're not aware of uh of what they just did and and so this um double um uh this double state um is is a sort of um um uh, problem that that was discussed uh in in late 19th century early 20th century psychology and uh angus has posted um a, a little summary of um pierre janet um who who studied these um these types of doubled consciousness states. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's helpful. Um, but the idea, um, what Simon Dong is, is pointing to here is the way that um, this, uh, we, we have these experiences of um, a double personality, um, not in the sense of, uh, not not necessarily in the same way as as in hypnosis um but we have the experiences or there are recorded experiences of people um who who uh, experience themselves as being um tempted by the devil or by some sort of demonic power um and and Simondon wants to explain why this uh experience of um this experience of temptation should be represented as something external to uh, to the subject, um, and and so what he argues here in this passage is that um, when we when we have this experience of temptation, um, there's a certain um, um, falling away uh, from a certain uh, a certain state. So if we think of these um, paths of spirituality that that he mentioned uh in a couple paragraphs earlier um we have um this um ascetic character or this inhibitory character to them um so there's a, a tension inherent in in that refusal of a certain possibility 
um, it, that is that is uh, implied in each of those states. Um, and and so it's always possible for someone who um, who is on that path um, to uh, sort of give in to temptation and accept that that possibility that they were um, sort of um, dedicated to refusing earlier. Uh, and then there's a sort of lowering of uh, of tension. There's a, a a lowering of the the general state of the of psychological tension. Um, and then in the so if our if our access to trans individual reality uh, or to the spiritual is brought about through that inhibition and through that ascetic practice, then uh, that temptation, giving into temptation, means um, the absence of that um, trans individual reality, and so it's in that sense, it's because of that absence, that that um, experience of absence, um, is uh, uh, is sort of the basis for um, what makes this experience of temptation uh, into something like a, an alienation, so something in which our um, Evil desires are are depicted as as outside of ourselves, um, as being the product of some demon outside of us. Um, and so there's a whole like there's a sort of restructuring of our um, uh, of our existence around this new set of values, um, and uh, we we restructure ourselves in such a way that we no longer um, have that tension of inhibiting ourselves and, and refusing the um, base action or, or the, um, the action that we had, um, the possibility that we had previously denied to ourselves. Um, so we, we now uh, allow ourselves to do something that we previously did not. Uh, and, and so we have a, a restructured um, behavioral system or or system of action uh and, and it's this restructuring um with the absence of uh trans individual reality that um takes on the appearance of uh a demon or something outside of ourselves yeah um this last section on good and evil it seemed to me like he was talking about the fall from like a higher a higher dimension uh which is the signification of of uh like the biological and the physical and because it's a change from this higher dimension back to the lower dimensions out of which it kind of was resolved that's why he says that they don't speak the same language in the same way that you wouldn't say that like a monocular image is the opposite of the, the binocular image that's resolved out of um Two monocular images. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good a good point, uh, um, a good explanation. Um, yeah, so um, the psychological reality um, and the psychological reality that points to, towards the trans individual reality um, uh, is is a sort of um, uh, mediation between vital, uh, the interior, uh, vital reality and the exterior physical reality. Um, and, um, in that mediating capacity, uh, it, it's sort of, um, it, it 
produces this um, new dimension in the same way that binocular vision produces a, a new dimension of depth, um, as we've discussed uh, in previous sections. Um, and then this experience of giving in to temptation or giving in to evil um, is a sort of uh, disappearance of that dimension. Uh, and, and so it, it's that um, uh, sense of, I guess, emptiness or of the lack of um, the lack of that uh, dimension that um, that manifests itself in the form of uh, of an external reality that that is tempting us to um, or that that brought about our our fall into this um, lower state. Okay, so we can go on to um, the next section. Um, I don't know if uh, anyone else would like to read. Uh, if not, I can continue. No, okay, I'll continue then. Okay, section six, the necessity of psychical ontogenesis. According to this perspective, ontogenesis would become the starting point for philosophical thought. It would really be first philosophy, anterior to the theory of knowledge and to an ontology that would follow this theory. Ontogenesis would be the theory of the phases of the being, anterior to objective knowledge, which is a relation of the individuated being to the milieu after individuation. The existence of the individuated being as subject is anterior to knowledge. A first study of the individuated being must precede the theory of knowledge. The science savoir of ontogenesis is prior to any critique of knowledge, connaissance. Ontogenesis precedes ontology and critique. Unfortunately, it is impossible for the human subject to witness its own genesis, for the subject must exist in order for it to think. The genesis of the conditions of the validity of thought in the subject cannot be mistaken for a genesis of the individuated subject. The cogito with the methodological doubt that precedes it and with the development that follows it, but what am I, I who am, does not constitute a true, a true genesis of the individuated being. The subject of doubt must be anterior to doubt. One can only say of the cogito that it approaches the conditions of individuation by assigning the return of the subject to itself as a condition of halting doubt. The subject grasps itself simultaneously as a doubting being and as, a, as an object of his doubt. Doubting and doubt are a single reality grasped via two aspects. It is an operation that returns to itself and grasps itself from two facets. It is a privileged operation that objectivates the subject facing himself because in the operation of doubting, it objectivates the doubting subject. Doubt is both the doubt subject, i.e. the doubt operation in the first person, and also the doubt that detaches from the operation of actual doubting as doubted doubt, as already accomplished objectivated operation i.e. already matter for another operation of doubting that immediately precedes it. Sorry, that immediately follows it. Uh, between doubting doubt and doubted doubt, a certain relation of distancing is constituted through which, nevertheless, the continuity of the operation is sustained. The subject recognizes himself as a subject of the doubt he just put forth, and nevertheless this doubt as an accomplished reality is already objectivated and detaches by becoming the object of a new doubt. In order for reaction to exist, there must be memory, i.e. at the same time and through a shared reality or operation, a distance taking and a joining together. The operation of doubt, which in this instance adheres to the subject, must distance itself relative to the center of activity and of consciousness, and it must form as an independent and autonomous unity of the being, all while remaining through this distance a thing of the subject, a thing expressing the subject. Memory is a distance-taking, an acquisition of objectivity without alienation. 
It is an extension of the limits of the subjective system that takes on an internal duality without separation or rupture. It is alterity and identity progressing together, forming and becoming distinguished in the same movement. The content of memory becomes the symbol of the present ego. It is the other part. The progress of memory is an asymmetrical splitting of the subject being, an individualization of the subject being. The mental matter that has become memory, or rather the content of memory, is the media associated with the present ego. Memory is the unity of the being as totality, i.e. as a system that incorporates this splitting and resists it, such that this splitting can be repeated and taken up again by the being. To remember is to find oneself again. But what finds is not homogeneous with what is found. What finds is like the individual, and what is found is like the milieu. The unity of the being that remembers is the unity of the joining of symbols. The being that remembers is more than the ego. It is more than the individual. It is the individual plus something else. The same applies to it for the imagination. The difference between memory and the imagination resides in the fact that the principle of encounter between the ego and the symbol of the ego aligns with the dynamic tendency of the ego in the imagination. Whereas in memory, the principle of encounter is in the symbol of the ego. There is symbolization in both cases, but in the operation of memory, symbolization takes the complementary symbol of the ego for the individual and the ego for the milieu. In the imagination, the ego is the individual and the symbol of the ego is the milieu. Finally, in the dialogue with oneself, the two roles alternate such that a quasi-reciprocity is established between the ego and the symbol of the ego. But this reciprocity is illusory. It cannot be equivalent to a veritable reciprocity except in the cases of splitting, i.e. when a certain coalescence is effectuated between the two symbols of the ego, the symbol relative to which the ego is an individual and the symbol relative to which it is a milieu. A counterpersonality is therefore constituted at the expense of the first, which increasingly loses its power of actuality and consequently its freedom. Freedom is in fact essentially constituted by this double adequation of the ego to its symbols, that of memory and that of imagination. What psychoanalysis considered to be an unconscious should in fact be considered a counter-ego, a double that is not a true ego, since it is never endowed with actuality. It can only be expressed in dreams or automatic acts, not in the state of integrated activity. Janet's idea of the personality splitting is perhaps closer to reality than that of the unconscious, which has been accepted since Freud. However, it would be more appropriate to speak of a doubling, doublement of personality, of a phantom personality than of a splitting, dédoublement of personality. What splits is not the actual personality, but another personality, a personality equivalent that is constituted outside the field of the ego, like a virtual image is constituted beyond the mirror for the observer without ever really being there. If there were a veritable splitting of the personality, one could not speak of a first state and a second state. Even if the second state occupies a time frame longer than the first state, it does not have the same structure and can be recognized as the second. All right, so this is um, a very difficult passage. There's uh, a lot of, um, uh, it's, it's very dense and there's no, um, there's no examples to help us sort of grasp what's going on. Um, but um, maybe we can start with um, the, the cogito um, and uh, this notion of doubt and uh, the, the sort of two sides of the doubting operation. Um, so the cogito, of course, is um, um, Descartes' um, idea of uh, how in doubting um, we, we, can, we can 
bring into doubt um, our knowledge even of mathematical truths or um, evident facts like you know the fact that there's a desk in front of me or whatever we can put all of those facts into doubt but in that act of doubting itself we what we can't bring into doubt is the fact that we exist or that i exist uh, in my action of doubt um but um what happens uh so this this action of doubting um is not uh is not a, a true genesis um of the subject it's it's a sort of um copy of the genesis of the subject because you already have to <clears throat> you have to exist already um in order to be able to doubt um so there's a an existing reality of the subject prior to the operation of doubting uh, and the subject doesn't first come into existence through doubt um and then uh in this act of doubting there's a um a, a sort of doubling of of the act in the sense that um there's um there's the operation of doubt and then there's um um there's the doubt as a as an object of uh of knowledge um so when you when you doubt your uh uh when when you doubt um a mathematical truth or whatever you um you have a, a certain action, a cognitive action of doubting, uh, but then that action itself becomes the object of uh, a future psychological or cognitive state. Um, uh, so you can you can doubt um, whether your previous doubt was uh, uh, valid, or or you can have other. Um, uh, cognitive acts directed towards your your previous act of doubting um and and so there's a, a sort of double character of doubt in uh in uh the cogito um and and so because of this there's um uh an essential intervention of memory in the act of uh of the cogito so you you have to identify yourself with the subject of a previous act of of doubting so you you perform an act of doubting you you doubt whether two plus two equals four um and then uh you make that act of doubt itself uh the object of uh, an act of doubting so you 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 can question uh whether whether um you are the same person who who first uh doubted whether two plus two equals four um and then that doubt can in turn become the action of a third doubt and so on uh the object of a third doubt um and so memory has to intervene here as um a sort of unifying principle so it's only because um the experience of doubt appears within the same uh memory stream i guess we can say um as the uh subsequent experience of doubt that we can uh we can have uh, something like um, uh, the this double character of doubt of making doubt an object of a, a further um, act of doubting. Um, but this memory, yeah. So this character of memory, um, this it gets to the especially difficult part of this um, passage that we just read. Um, 
so memory has this this character of um, both bringing together and uh, separating different states. So insofar as um, one act of doubting appears as uh, appears within the same memory stream as the previous act of doubting, uh, they they're sort of unified together. But at the same time, they're um, separated from each other. Um, uh, in the sense that um, the the one uh, one state appears uh, as as a content of memory as a as something remembered, whereas the other one appears as um, present uh, a present reality. Um, and then in this in this um, role of memory, this sort of double role of uniting and separating at the same time. Um, Simondon suggests here that um, the, uh, the content of memory plays the role of the milieu in relation to the, uh, the ego, um, uh, uh, the, the present I, um, the one who is currently doing the doubting. Um, so in the same way that um, in vital individuation, you have the the coming to be of uh, a living organism and its associated environment at the same time. Likewise, you would have in psychological reality coming to be of um, of the the eye uh, at the same time as the uh, associated memory uh, that that goes along with it. Um, so it's only because. Uh, it's only because there there is um, this associated um, milieu of memory that uh, there is uh, that there can be something like an eye that persists through time. Um, and then he relates this conception. Um, um, I should say, sorry, before I go on to that, um, I should mention. So he uses the term symbol here, um, and this again is um, based on the um, the ancient Greek practice of. Uh, Splitting a token in half and using each half to recognize uh, the other. Um, so anytime that Simon Don uses the word symbol, that's what we should think of. Um, and um, yeah, so then he he goes on to um, to characterize uh, imagination as being um, likewise um, related to. Um, Related to the the I uh, or the ego um, as um, as a symbol uh, in this sense as as being the two halves of the complete reality, um, but um, in the case of uh, imagination, it's um, uh, yeah. In the case of the imagination, um, you have this. Um, symbolization relationship. So you have um, the, the two halves of the uh, uh, complete reality um, in, in the sense that uh, the imagined uh, future event um, plays the role of the milieu in, in which the, um, uh, in which the, uh, the eye um, plays the role of the individual. Uh, and then there's, a, again, coming back to this notion of a doubling or splitting of personality um, and uh, and here we have reference to to uh, Pierre Janet, 
Um, and uh, Simon Do argues that um, his conception of the doubled personality or split personality uh, is um, preferable to Freud's notion of the unconscious. Um, and we've seen criticisms of Freud and psychoanalysis um, throughout this book sort of interspersed in different passages. Um, but um, I think this is probably the most direct uh, criticism of Freud. So he, he argues here that um, what, uh, what Freud, um, the, the reality behind uh, the, the uh, unconscious that Freud identifies it only manifests itself in in action in states like dreaming um, and um, uh, automatic acts. Um, so this um, this unconscious reality is only sort of manifested in these secondary phenomena. And uh, what is more important is the doubling uh, uh, doubling of consciousness or doubling of personality that Janet had identified. Yeah, that that was the most confusing part of this paragraph to me because it seems like he's saying that the unconscious really only exists in these cases of like split or splitting of the personality or dissociative dissociative identity disorder or whatever uh, whatever it would be called now. Um, <clears throat> but I don't know, that seems, uh, it seems like a pretty extreme criticism, um, unless I'm misreading it and he's saying that the unconscious does exist, but it's more like the split personality. Uh, but he does seem to refer to that as happening in only, like only in certain cases where there's this coalescence between the two symbols of the ego. Yeah, as I mentioned, this is a, a, a very difficult passage. Um, so I'm not, I'm not super confident about how to interpret it. Um, but I think, um, I think when he talks about doubling of personality, he doesn't want to limit this to um, the types of states that would today be described as um, not a dissociative disorder. Um, uh, like even even when Janet in, introduced this idea of a double personality, he um, he applied it to uh, a variety of different phenomena, including hypnosis and and um, states that um, can appear in um, so-called normal subjects as well. Um, and um, and so I think for Simon Don, when he talks about this double um, double personality or doubling of personality. Um, I think, I think we should not read that as, um, uh, being limited to, um, what we would describe as, as dissociative disorder. Um, I think, I think he wants to sort of, um, re-explain some of the phenomena that psychoanalysis would explain in terms of the unconscious, um, in terms, instead of this double personality, um, uh, or a secondary personality, um, uh, rather than um, sort of saying that uh, only in the case of, of this dissociative disorder uh, is there anything like the unconscious. This is one place where I wish he had really, he'd, I don't know, given an example or gone into more detail. So I think that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, he just sort of uh, 
teases us with this idea of uh, double personality or, or doubling of personality um, and doesn't really develop. He just gives us like a couple sentences and then he moves on to something else. Um, but I think, yeah, I'm just looking at this bit again about um, dialogue with oneself um, so that um, in, in phenomena where we have something like a, a dialogue with one with ourselves, um, there's um, a sort of alternation between the um, the these doubled states. Uh, so the the I and the um, symbol of the I, the uh, counterpart of the I. Uh, there's a sort of reciprocity established, or, or he calls it a quasi reciprocity. Um, but he, he immediately goes on to say that this is illusory. Um, so he says it's only in the case of, um, of a true splitting of personality that you have a, a real reciprocity. Um, but I think we can still uh, understand this as saying that there's some sort of, um, um, I guess, appearance of a, a doubled state um, uh, even in cases where it, there isn't a, a true splitting of personality. Um, so that uh, even in a phenomenon like, um, uh, like if we go back to the experience of temptation from uh, a couple paragraphs above, um, where you, you sort of experience yourself, uh, even if you don't have the experience of uh, being tempted by a demon, um, you, can, you still sort of experience yourself as having these... Uh, conflicting tendencies within yourself uh, of either to um, abstain from something or to um, uh, submit to temptation and uh, give in to temptation. Um, and so there's still a, a, a sort of doubling uh, effect going on in those um, states or in those experiences. Uh, and, and so I think we can, uh, we can, sort of take those as, as um, instances of what he's talking about. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit, um, halfway down 321, if someone else would like to read. Uh, I can read, unless Sven feels like reading. No problem with that. All right, I'll read. Yet Descartes chooses the development of memory as the privileged case in which the existence of the subject is deciphered. The reciprocity of the doubt that just occurred relative to the doubt that is that is currently being constituted as doubt, establishes the substantial unity of the subject in a conditional and causal circularity. Nevertheless, this circularity is a borderline case. There is already distance, and there must be a distance for there to be circularity. But the circularity conceals and obscures the distance. This is why Descartes can substantialize what is not a substance properly speaking, i.e. an operation. The soul is defined as a race and a cogitans. The support of the operation and the operation in the process of being accomplished. However, the unity and homogeneity of this being formed by a subject and by an operation can only be affirmed if the being operation ensemble continues to be perpetuated in the same mode. If the activity stops or seems to stop, the permanence and identity of substance thus defined is put at risk. Whence the problem of sleep and loss of consciousness for Descartes relative to the conception of the nature of the soul. 
Descartes has legitimately considered the self-return of doubt as indicating the consistency and unity of the individuated being. Circularity indeed should be considered as indicating the consistency of the individuated being. Perhaps there is an error in considering that the return of the actualized return of actualized doubt as an object of actual doubt is a veritable circularity. Assimilating this return to a circularity in his proof of the cogito, Descartes does not account for the growing distance between actualized doubt, which has become the object of memory, and actualizing doubt, relative to which this anterior doubt is an object to the extent that it is no longer already actual. Individuation is not achieved. It is not the process of taking place, but there is already more than the actual subject ego to the extent that there is enough distance between doubt and ego for doubt to be able to be the object of the ego. Doubt becoming object is doubt passing and not doubt actualizing. Through this first assimilation, through this first encroachment unrecognized as encroachment, the adjacent symbol of the ego is attached to and assimilated with the ego. By gradually proceeding in this way, Descartes attaches the whole symbolic content to the actual ego. The attachment of actualized doubt to the subject of actual doubt authorizes the attachment of willing, feeling, loving, hating, and imagining to thinking substance. The fact of suffering is homogeneous relative to the fact to the sorry, the fact of suffering is homogeneous relative to the act of thinking. The most distant aspects of reflecting thought are then attached to this reflecting thought that has helped define the essence of the res cogitans. This radical affirmation of homogeneity can only be effectuated by pushing back the limit of the res cogitans in the res extensa. The break is thus so abrupt between the aspects of thought most attached to the body and the body itself that the gulf between substances is insurmountable. Descartes has not just separated the soul from the body, he is also within the very interior of the soul, created a homogeneity and a unity that prevent the conception of a continuous gradient of distancing relative to the actual ego, thereby joining it in its most decentered zones at the limit of memory and the imagination with somatic reality. It sounds like what he's saying here is that Descartes can he's correct to think that there is a circularity that, uh, that kind of constitutes the unity of, of the individuated being, or I guess the psychological individual, but he conflates doubting doubt and doubted doubt. Um, and doesn't recognize that in order for the ego to, to doubt, it must be able to take the doubt as its object, which implies a distance between the operation and like the object of the operation. Uh, and if you see that distance, then you can't really conceive of it as a self-identical substance. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so this, this has to do with what I mentioned before about how in the Kogito, you have this uh, necessary intervention of memory because um, the you the the doubting doubt um so the doubt that is actually happening um to to sort of recognize that doubt as being identical with the 
doubted doubt, the one that just happened an mm -hmm. instant ago, um, you have to have um, memory intervene to um, to sort of tie the two together. Uh, and so um, for the cogito to work, um, the these two sides of doubt were supposed to be um, sort of uh, immediately joined to each other. There's supposed to be no gap between them. Um, there's supposed to be like two sides of a, a page or something like that. Um, but uh, this intervention of memory already shows that there's um, there's a there is a distance between them, uh, and it's only because uh, memory intervenes in the process uh, that you can have something like um, a unity of the subject. Um, and um, so, when when you once you start uh, on the, this process of um, uh, sort of allowing the assimilation of the uh, just past instant of doubt to the present uh, doubting subject, um, then then you can sort of um, continue this same process to other uh, contents of of the mind. Um, so you can have um, you can have um, imagination and love and hate and uh, sensation and so on. Uh, all of these other um, acts of the mind or states of the mind are um, recognized as forming part of the race cogitants. Um, they uh, they're sort of assimilated to the um, existing reality. But for for Descartes, there's no way to um, there's no way to there, there's a, a strict division between what belongs to the race cogitants and what does not belong to it. Um, and so there's no way to uh, recognize something like a gradient um, that would um, proceed gradually from the existing I, uh, the actual I, uh, to other contents of memory, uh, contents of, of the mind. Um, and Simon Do also makes a reference here to the um, the problem that, that Descartes has in relation to um, sleep. Uh, and this was, I think, one of the objections, if I remember correctly. Um, so when, when Descartes writes his meditations, it's published with a series of objections and responses. And, and one of the questions had to do with um, what happens to the race cogitants during sleep if if the the being of the the soul consists in thinking. Uh, if the soul is essentially a thinking thing, then uh, doesn't that mean that the soul ceases to exist during sleep, um, uh, or at least during dreamless sleep when we're um, when we're not thinking? Um, and I can't remember what Descartes' answer to that uh, objection was, but it it's a uh, it raises a, a problem for any um, attempt to substantialize the soul to uh, to treat thinking uh, as uh, something as the essential property of the soul uh, that uh, that it has to or, or this action of thinking as being uh, essential to the the nature of the soul. Uh, there are also a couple of little translation issues here that I, I think well they don't they don't sort of cause a, a big um, a big uh, 
interpretation issue, but there are a couple of points where I think there are mistakes. Um, so in um, uh, so on three twenty two, where where he says um, the proof of the cogito, what it, it says in French is actually something like the trial of the cogito um, um and so this this is a sort of um, uh, uh, the cogito is meant to be, uh, or the way that Simon Don is presenting it here, the cogito is not just um, a, a sort of abstract argument that you present um, in a, a, a discussion. Um, it's an actual experience. It's uh, something that you go through. Um, and, and this is the way that, that um, Descartes actually presents it as, um, uh, as not just a sort of thought experiment, but as um, a, a real lived experience uh, where you put everything into doubt and there's a sort of um, uh, anxiety about knowledge um, until you reach this point of the cogito and realizing that there's at least one truth that you can know certainly, um, no matter how you might be deceived by um, an evil spirit uh, about other things, you, you, can't, uh, you can't be... Uh, mistaken about whether or not you exist. Um, and there was, where was the other, um, there was another translation issue, um, if I can find it. Oh, right, we're just a couple lines below that one, where he says, individuation is not achieved, it is in the process of taking place. Um, uh, oh, sorry, no, that one's correct. Uh, uh, I thought there was another one, but I can't see it right now. Um, so we can uh, go on to the Next bit. I don't mind reading again since you just did a long explanation. Uh, sure, yeah, that, that's uh, helpful. So yeah, right from the bottom of 322. Psychically, the individual continues its individuation by means of memory and imagination. The function of the past and the function of the future according to mundane definitions. Indeed, it is only after the fact that one can speak of past and future from memory and imagination. Memory is what creates the past for the being, in the same way that the imagination creates the future. The product of this psychical individuation is in fact only psychical at the center. The pure psychical is the actual. The distant future and the past that has become distant past are realities that tend toward the somatic. The past is incorporated as well as the future into the form of anticipation. By distancing from the present, the past becomes a state against the ego and is available for the ego, but is not directly related to the ego and is not adherent to the ego. The future projected is all the more distanced from actualization as it is broadly pushed back into the future. But progressive becoming evokes and renders it eminent. Little by little, it gives it a status that is closer to the status of the present i.e. more directly symbolic relative to the actual present. According to this manner of envisioning the reality of the individuated being, it could be said that the body plays a double role with respect to consciousness. With respect to imagining consciousness, the body is milieu and not individuated reality. It is the real virtual, i.e. a source of reality that can become symbolic with respect to the present. This reality splits into present and future as though into individual and milieu. Conversely, the body results from the splitting that creates memory as an individuated being relative to a conscious milieu of individuation. 
The consciousness of memory is thus always as though it, as though it were below what it remembers, whereas imagining consciousness is above what it imagines. The past and therefore the body is what directs and chooses the present and the consciousness of memory, while the present chooses the future and imagining consciousness. The body provides access to memory while consciousness provides access to imagination. Consciousness is attached to the body through memory and through imagination at least as much at least as much through functions generally considered psychosomatic. The complementary opposition of body and imagination indicates psychophysiological relation. But this relation cannot be assimilated to bisubstantial relation. The aspect of the soul and the aspect of the body are merely extreme cases. The pure soul is the present. The pure body is the soul, infinitely past or infinitely distanced into the future. This is why the soul is univalent, while the body is bivalent. The body is pure past and future. The soul makes the near past and near future coincide. It is present. The soul is the being's present. The body is its future and its past. The soul is in the body, just as the present is between the future and the past that radiate out from it. The body is past and future, but not the soul. In this sense, the soul is timeless as pure soul. But this timelessness is nevertheless lodged between two temporal realities. This timelessness temporalizes towards the past by becoming body, and it arises from a corporeal reality that approaches the state of the present. The reality of the being, the reality of the being comes from the future toward the present by becoming soul, and it is reincorporated by passing. The soul emerges and is built between two corporeities. It is the extremity of animation and the origin of incorporation. Uh, yeah, I'll read some more. Consciousness is therefore a mediation between two corporeal becomings, an ascending movement toward the present and a descending movement from the, from the present. One could say that this movement of becoming, proceeding step by step, is transductive. The true schema of real transduction is time, the passage from state to state that is formed by the very nature of the states, by their content, and not by the exterior schema of their succession. Time, thus conceived, is the being's movement, real modification, reality that modifies and is modified, being simultaneously what it leaves behind and what it takes, real insofar as it is relational to the milieu, or the middle milieu between two states, being a passage, a passing reality, reality insofar as it passes, such as transductive reality. The individual, the individuated being is that for which there exists this ascent and this descent of becoming relative to the central present. There is no living and psychical individuated being except to the extent that it assumes time. To live as an individuated being is to exert memory and anticipation. The present is psychosomatic at the limit, but it is essentially psychical. Relative to this present that is psychical, the future is like an immense possible field. The milieu of virtuality is associated with the present through a symbolic relation. On the contrary, the past relative to this present is an ensemble of individualized 
localized, defined points. The present is a transduction between the field of the future and the interconnected points of the past. The field of the future is reticulated through and by the present. It loses its tensions, its potentials, its implicit energy, that ex its implicit energy that expands in its full extension and is coextensive with it. It crystallizes into individuated points in a neutral void, whereas the tendency of the future is expanded through the whole milieu, like the energy of a field not localizable into points, and constitutes a sort of general energy. The past takes refuge in a network of points that absorb its whole substance. It loses the milieu, its own extension, the omnipresent eminence of tension to charged reality. There is nothing in the universe of memory but actions and reactions between points of reality structured in a network. Between these points, there is the void, and this is why the past is condensable, since there is nothing in the intervals between these points of reality. The past is isolated relative to itself, and it can become a system only partially through the present that reactualizes it, takes it back up, gives it tendency and living corp corporeity. The past owes its availability to the structure of molecular isolation. It can be artificialized because it does not hold on to itself. It allows itself to be utilized because it is in pieces. So this, uh, well, I don't know if you want me to just keep reading or if we should stop there, but it, this, uh, this seems a lot like the discussion of reflexivity, but now we have, instead of the biological and the physical, we have the body kind of on both sides of the psychological reality. Yeah, we can we can stop here. Um, this is a one of these long paragraphs where there's no good stopping point. So yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah, this is again a, a very difficult passage. Um, um, let me just scroll back up here. Uh, right. So there's this idea of the past and the future as um, belonging to the body in a, in a way that the present does not. Um, and the way that I try to make sense of this, I'm not sure if this is correct or not, but um, I think um, when he talked about um, time in relation to living uh, beings to vital individuation, he um, he talked about how the past is um, incorporated into the behavior of those beings. So um, uh, as far as we can tell, non-human animals don't have episodic memory. They don't recall memories, um, but they remember, um, they remember through um, the effect of the past on their present and future behavior. Um, so like, uh, you know, the classic conditioning things that, you know, anyone who, ha who has a, a pet will recognize that, like, you know, they they know that when you put on your jacket, it's time to go for a walk or um, that, you know, dinner time is uh, uh, comes after a certain uh, other action or whatever, like they recognize these patterns. Um, so they they uh, they learn from the past, but they they um, the dog or horse or whatever other animal doesn't recall a specific um a specific instance um of the past they don't recall you know yesterday's walk or whatever um so uh 
in this sense, the the past is just sort of incorporated into the um, responses of that organism in uh, towards its environment, uh, and and in that sense, it, it's um, bodily. It uh, it it doesn't have a, a psychical reality um, in the sense that the past is not something that the um, the this organism experiences as such. Um, Whereas um, for humans, of course, we we have both learning capacity um, so that we can incorporate the past into our behavior. Uh, and then we also have episodic memory um, so we can remember what happened yesterday or a year ago or, or um, specific events. Um, and so I think I think this. Um, incorporation of the past into behavior is the sense in which um, uh, the past is is uh, corporeal um, and then episodic memory or recollection um, would be um, a making present of the past so it's only insofar as the past reappears as present that it has a psychical value that it, it um, is something that the subject actually experiences uh, and then the future would be likewise um, um, brought about through some sort of anticipation. Uh, so um, like uh, a dog has an expectation of the future in the sense that it behaves in a certain way, you know, based on uh, uh, a sort of prediction of what's going to happen. So um, like, uh, you know, Putting on the jacket means that we're going to go for a walk soon. Um, uh, something like that. Um, there's these anticipations that are based on um, uh, past experience, and um, um, so this anticipation would likewise be a corporeal um, aspect or a corporeal phenomenon in the sense that it it doesn't involve. Um, something like a, a psychical reality, uh, an experience of the future. So the dog might anticipate what is going to happen next or what's going to happen soon, but the dog does not have um, a psychical image of, uh, of the future in the way that we can have uh, an anticipation uh, uh, in, of the future. Um, and so this is how I sort of make sense of this passage. Um, and uh, yeah, so in to this extent, um, the the purely psychical is the is the actual. So um, it's only insofar as something is actually present in consciousness um, that um, that there's something like a psychical reality, um, and uh, anything that doesn't um, appear uh, doesn't have this. Um, actuality to it um, would not be psychical in the in the pure sense of the term, uh, but okay, <clears throat> of course, um, of course, this distinction between the the psychical and the corporeal um, is is not a substantial distinction. So it's not the case that um, that the mind would be or the soul would be a, a substance that uh, has some sort of relation to the body. Um, in which it would be a, a distinct substance. Um, instead, we have um, 
a sort of mixed state or intermediate state is is the norm and um he he suggests that um something like uh, a pure a pure soul or a pure um body state would be an exception to the rule um or an exceptional state uh and and so there's only um the the general reality is a sort of intermediate state which is um i guess partly psychical and partly corporeal uh, or somatopsychic um i think is the term that he uses uh, or psychosomatic uh um um so yeah so functions like memory and imagination um should be understood as psychosomatic ones for simondon and not as um purely psychical okay so i'll read the uh the last page or so um just before we end uh, i think we have another few minutes uh, the reality of the being comes from the future toward the present by becoming soul uh oh sorry is that where we are no i think i've gone back sorry uh let's try. No, sorry, it's, it's here. The future does not hold, does not allow itself. That's where we are, right? Ah, uh, yes. Okay. The future does not allow itself to be condensed, detailed, or even thought. It can only be anticipated by a real act, for its reality is not condensed in a certain number of points. All of its energy exists between possible points. There is a proper ambience of the future, a relational capacity and an implicit activity before any realization. The being pre-exists itself through its present. The present of the being is thus simultaneously individual and milieu. It is individual relative to the future and milieu relative to the past. The soul, the active essence of the present, is both individual and milieu. But it cannot be individuated and milieu without this existence of the total being, the psychosomatic being, which is both somatic and social, linked to exteriority. The relation of the present to the past and the future is analogical vis-a-vis the somatopsychic relation and to this other vaster relation of the complete individuated being to the world and to other individuated beings. This is why one must refrain from substantializing the soul, for the soul does not possess all its reality within itself. The present requires the future and the past in order to be present, and through these two distancings of the future and the past, the soul approaches the body. The body is the non-present, it is not the matter of a soul form. The present arises from the body and returns to the body, the soul crystallizes the body. The present is individuation's operation. The present is not a permanent form. It is found as form in the operation. It finds form in individuation. This double rapport of the symbolization of the present relative to the future and to the past allows one to say that the present, or rather presence, is signification relative to the past and to the future, a mutual signification of the past and of the future through the transductive operation. The present consists for the being in existing as individual and as milieu in a unitary way. However, this is only possible through the operation of ongoing individuation, which is analogous in itself to the initial individuation by which the somatopsychic being constitutes itself within a tensed and polarized systematic whole. Uh, sorry, I got lost. Oh, here we go. The individual concentrates within it the dynamics that has given birth to it, and it perpetuates the first operation as a continued individuation. To live is to perpetuate an ongoing relative birth. It does not suffice to define the living being as an organism. The living being is an organism depending on the initial individuation, but it can live only by being an organism that organizes and organizes itself through time. The organization of the organism is the result of an individual individuation that can be called absolute. But this organization is a condition of life rather than life itself. 
it is a condition of the perpetuated birth that life is. To live is to have a presence, to be present relative to oneself and relative to what is outside oneself. It is indeed true in this sense that the soul is distinct from the body, that it is not the organism. It is the presence of the organism. To make, a consciousness, to make of consciousness an aspect of the organism, as Goldstein does, is to develop it in an organismic unity. However, the Parmenidean monism that inspires Goldstein, failing to give temporality a constitutive role in the being, cannot introduce diversification into the being except through the notion of a folding of being, according to the expression put forth by the author. The soul could then only be a being imperfectly detached from within a totality that would in this way lose its reciprocal unity of circular plenitude. If, by contrast, the soul is con conceived as what perpetuates the first operation of individuation that the being expresses and integrates, insofar as it is the result of the latter yet contains and extends it, such that the genesis that has, been, that has made it be is veritably its own genesis, the soul intervenes as the extension of this unity. It has a reference to what has not been incorporated into the individual by individuation. It is presence to this symbol of the individual. It is at the very center of the individual, but it is also that through which the latter remains attached to that which is not in. Um, so this bit is, um, I think, largely a sort of um, recapitulation of what we've seen throughout this part of the book, um, this idea of psychical individuation as um, uh, an extension of the vital individuation through which a being comes into existence. Um, so um, there's um, uh, a, a continuity between uh, vital individuation and psychical individuation. Um, and uh, as we've seen also throughout this part, um, there's a, an incompleteness of psychical individuation in the sense that it always points beyond itself to collective individuation. Uh, and um, uh, we have again this criticism of Goldstein, um, 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 this uh, Parmenidean uh, notion of consciousness, um, um, which doesn't have uh, a place for temporality. Um, um, and uh, so we instead have to think of psychical reality or of the soul as um, a continuation of uh, the genesis of the the being. Uh, yeah, and, and Angus has uh, posted in the chat here that um, one of his criticisms of Descartes is that if you substantialize the soul, you can't think the necessary relation of the somatic and the psychical. Um, yeah, this is a, a sort of um, a classic criticism of Descartes um, um, that there's no um, there's no way of uh, explaining the relationship of the body and, and the soul. Um, and, you know, Descartes' explanation had to do with, um, you know, the pineal gland and um, subtle matter and, and all these um, sort of uh, difficult um, explanations that uh, are, are hard to make sense of. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and so, I think just about everyone who, who reads Descartes will, will um, come up with that same objection. Um, okay, so I think we should stop here before we run out of time. Uh, so next week we'll pick up uh, on collective individuation, which is the last part of the book uh, before the conclusion. So we're, uh, and this is a, a relatively short part. It's, it's I think about 
30 or 40 pages. Um, so we're, we're getting close to the end uh, of the first volume, that is. Uh, the second volume is, uh, so the first volume is, is the, the book itself, and the second volume is all the um, secondary texts that go along with it. Um, but yeah, so we're getting to the end of the, the first book. Um, so thank you, everyone, and uh, I'll see you all next week.